Ready graphics? Ready theme? One time, uh, I, I having some difficulty with some particular something or another, uh, someone saying to me, Susie, did it ever occur to you that you think too much? I tell you, young, I tell you, younger women, when someone says that to you, it's because you they're not thinking enough. Hi, I'm Jesse Mullins. And I'm Lauren Milberger, and welcome to another interview episode of the podcast. We are so excited to welcome dying English player from Love and War and the first season of Murphy Brown, the great Susie Plaxon. I walked in excited to talk to Susie. Obviously, we've talked about her work in Star Trek, which was important to me. Um, we loved her and I would have danced all night. We're huge fans of her work in Love and War. And I this is the perfect example of somebody that you're excited to talk to and you leave even more excited that you got to. I walked in uh so excited to just take in her energy. I got her energy. I got her amazing electric conversation, and I left wanting to conquer the world. You might also remember her from uh, her voice from Dinosaurs, uh, which is a show that I adored. Uh, you uh, may remember her. She was Dr. Joan on Mad About You. Uh, she had a recurring role in How I Met Your Mother. She's a legend. You'll hear her voice and be sent back to many wonderful memories. I mean, that's an amazing intro. I couldn't agree more. What I love about this interview is that it goes from talking about sitcoms to uh, talking about her book to talking about art, talking about starting out. You know, it's a real eclectic interview that I think everyone is really going to enjoy. And uh, Lauren, if people were social media savvy, where might they find us? Yes, those social media savvy people can find us everywhere at Murphy Brown Pod, Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Mm hmm. And we have a Patreon, murphybrownpod.com slash donate. You can give one-time donation. You can be uh, a member of the Patreon. It's totally up to you. And we can bring you more amazing interviews with some great actors like Susie. Yes, we truly cannot do this without your support. And every little bit counts. It means the world to us. And check out our summary for important links mentioned in this episode. Bye. Will the mystery guest please sign in? Hi there, this is Susie Plaxon, and I played Jackie from the art department on Murphy Brown, and I also played Fightin' Mary Margaret Meg Tynan on Love and War. Hi, ladies. Hi, Hello. welcome. We're so Hi, excited everybody. to have you. I am so excited to be here. So very excited to be here. I am so very impressed that you can still say that entire character name. Yes. So quickly and easily. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Listen, if I played her for three years and I couldn't say her name, that would be really sad. You, you would hope. <laughs> yeah. 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 But I loved I loved playing Meg. Sometimes I miss Meg. Yeah. She was great. She's a fun girl. So where do we go? Well, what's the what's the spring? We for like here? to start with your origin story. Ah, uh, my origin story. Go ahead. Yeah. Where where you're from? What took you to acting? We're both actors. We love we love to hear where people have started and what was their impetus to want to be a performer. Got it. Well, I was uh, born in Buffalo, New York, and raised in a little town in Kingston, Pennsylvania, called Kingston, Pennsylvania. And I was the kind of kid who, if I went away to camp, and I had a friend who was from Georgia. Suddenly I came back with a thick Southern accent. If I saw Mary Poppins, I came back British. I just loved the transformation. I loved the play of all of that. And going along with the transformation, I think that was the, the most um, potent thing because it felt like magic to me. And I also had this is many thousands of years ago now, um, they, a thing called elocution class when I was eight. And they gave us, they gave me a beautiful poem to recite. And I remember that moment so distinctly because the combination of the words, these gorgeous words, and the combination of the lighting and people listening, you know, you can feel that even as a kid. And that moment stayed with me. And I think I kind, I, I would consistently seek that kind of communion. Um, and the other part of it was, of course, and I think it draws a lot of people who are um, theatrical types, let us say, into 
performing is that because I was so extraordinarily tall at such a young age that I felt a bit on the outside of things. And a lot of us who gravitate towards theater feel somewhat misfit. And then we find the theater. And then because I was bigger than life in real life, once I got on a stage and I was pretending to be these bigger than life characters, I fit. Suddenly mm-hmm. things fit. So at what point for you when you were discovering the art and what this did for you and the performance, when did it become capital A acting for you? In what sense? When did it, when did it go from playing on stage to a pursuit? Ah, what a wonderful question. Um, I think it was a gradual illness. <laughs> that's oh, so that's real. So real. <laughs> Uh, I, I do. I believe it was something that was a combination of falling wildly in love with old movies, uh, masterpiece theater, brilliant old sitcoms, all of it. Just it was a soup, music. And once again, this feeling of, ah, there's a home here. And it just began to kind of take hold. And I, I can't say that there was any moment of this is it, but like I say, it just was, it, it gradually took hold of me and, and propelled me into, uh, into <laughs> the vainglorious <laughs> pursuit of performance and theater and all that jazz. So I, I love that you mentioned that you watched old sitcoms. So comedically, did you have a specific uh, comedically, any heroes that you looked up to that influenced you when you went into comedy? Well, Carol Burnett, for sure. And I, you know, I actually auditioned for one of her uh, revival shows when I first got to Hollywood. And I was expecting to walk in and have there just be people. And ow, and I don't know why they call it a funny bone, because it hurts. That's all I'm saying. Um <laughs> And I walked in, uh, or I knocked on the door, and she answered the door. Oh, my God. Tears immediately. And she was. She said, oh, my God, you just made my day. And we hugged. And, I mean, it was just, it was really suddenly I'm now in a surreal situation. And because I just remember that uh, sitting there, and viscerally I had this memory of flannel pajamas and wet hair, and watching her and laughing and my favorite, favorite parts, which are, of course, everyone's favorite parts, are when Tim and Harvey would laugh. Um, and that's the kind of, that's, that's the fabric I'm made of as an actor. I'm an easy giggler. Uh, so, of course, to me, that was, that was delicious. But, but also, growing up, I was, or my whole family was, we were just fans of things like Barney Miller. Mm. And... Uh, obviously all in the family and Maud and Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. And, and I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And the thing about them was, I mean, the first most important thing was that they were hilarious, but the second most important thing about them was that they were socially impactful. Mm. And I found that to be really inspiring. Uh, so that was in those days, those those sitcoms had real profundity, and I remember one. God, I think there was a an episode of of uh, All in the Family where where Edith's transgendered friend got beaten to death. Yep. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's going to happen on a major network today, but you never know. Well, it's interesting that you say that. It's one of the things we talk about a lot on this show about Murphy Brown and um, about those shows that we loved growing up on is that that impactful dramedy quality, that ability to take these major uh, socio- socio and political topics and deal with them, weaving the two together. And I that uh, that storyline that you talk about makes me think a lot of things that we're seeing now only in drama. Mm-hmm. True. That's true. Um, and then Murphy Brown came back. <laughs> I mean, in some ways... And I mean, this is what was so um, awesome in the original sense of the word around Diane and Linda Bloodworth Thompson because, or Thomason, I'm sorry, I might be saying her name wrong, Um, because of Murphy Brown and Designing Women, that they were these very classy, powerful, brilliant women wielding this uh, really potent comedy Mm -hmm. that was waking up 
America in a lot of in a lot of ways in which we were sleeping and 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 not the least of which we were suddenly seeing these characters or seeing more characters uh women who were smart and powerful and varied and different and funny you know the thing about barney miller and i think about it i adored it and it was brilliant but it always frustrated me even as a kid that linda lavin who is fabulous and it's no disrespect to her whatsoever didn't really get enough to do yeah. mm-hmm. didn't really mm-hmm. get to really have power funny yeah. so um anyway well you mentioned hollywood um but i do want to backtrack a little bit because i have a uh, personal interest in this uh you went to northwestern i did go to northwestern i left northwestern a year early but i did go yes i'm currently living in chicago and grad school at depaul so i was like chicago what was it like being there what was it like being there well it's so funny. There's an old Sondheim quote, life was young, but oh, so intense. Everything was possible and nothing made sense. <laughs> I, I remember those years. They were in many ways, artistically, incredibly empowering. Uh, I was an actual, it's going to sound really arty farty, but it actually was amazing training. I was what was known then as an interp major interpretation, meaning we studied English and theater at the same time. And I I, um, for example, one of the first classes I took in it, we were doing, we were studying the bald soprano by Ionesco. And there was a scene in which I remember Mr. and Mrs. Let's pretend their name is Smith because it really doesn't matter, but they're going back and forth talking to each other. And I had, uh, on a stick, a sock and a newspaper. And, and at the beginning of the scene, the, the wife was sewing the sock and the man was reading the newspaper. And by the end of the scene, the man was reading the sock and she was sewing the newspaper. <laughs> oh, and cool, I cool. never would have, and I was playing two different characters at the same time. And I never would have uh, been able to tap that level of imagination, I, I think, if I had just gone straight to theater. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. So, so and, it, and, it, and it really did... Um, it really did embrace a love of language and a love of literature. Well, it's funny. It reminds me of when I, um, I grew up with, you know, a passionate Shakespeare scholar, we'll say. And one of my favorite things was taking the theater class in Shakespeare and taking the English class in Shakespeare. And those two approaches, because they're both very sure they have the correct approach, but by bringing them together, you learn a lot more about the art form. So that's fascinating, an entire degree about that. And essentially you got to really practice directing skills Mm -hmm. and you had to write a paper on each performance. So I found that to be a lot more, well, for one thing, worth the money uh, (laughs) um, than being, and this is is not made up, Macbeth's brain as if it were beef stroganoff soup. I'm I'm not making that up. That was was some kind of ridiculous acting exercise that we actually all had to meet and get together and practice. I just had no patience. I just really had no patience for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it didn't help my acting. I know it sounds surprising. Yeah. But. <laughs> what? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was that was always me with uh, being animals. Right. When I was really young. I, w- I, I remember specifically in day camp mm-hmm. going into the acting class. And I, w- I mean, I was very young and they were doing animals and I went, nope. And I just turned around and walked Oh, out. good for you. <laughs> Unfortunately, I was conciliatory and played along and just ate my guts out with frustration. It's fine. You pulled the the nothing from chorus line root and got out. That's right. That's (laughs) right. I mean, I shouldn't say I uh, I was a sloth in grad school, so I shouldn't like literally played a sloth. So I did eventually succumb to it. We had to pick an animal and I don't know why I picked a sloth. It's because you were in grad school and got no sleep. That's why you chose a sloth. <laughs> Probably. Yeah, it was all subconscious. So did you stay in Chicago or did you go first thing to New York? I did. I told my parents uh, there was a reason I needed to leave the last year uh, that, you know, it's a, nothing too alarming, but it's personal. And I said to my parents, listen, I am going to go to NYU. I'm going to transfer to NYU, which I actually had no desire to do. And I'm going to hit, the, I, I'm going to, you know, start acting, start doing what I've been trained to do. And I went to NYU for about two weeks and was completely offended because as I was about, I mean, I was going to be a senior and they put me back with a freshman. 
And I was oh, so irritated yeah. by that. And uh, I left in two weeks and just began to hit the pavements and was spectacularly unsuccessful for about seven years. Um, I lived in a, I was very that girl, speaking of old sitcoms, I lived in a little postage, not even postage stamp apartment that faced a brick wall. And uh, I didn't know anything about Feng Shui at the time, obviously. And uh, I, I just, I did some improv comedy. I worked three jobs at once answering telephones, which is why I still hate answering telephones. You know, just all sorts of odd gigs. And I think I did uh, the importance of being earnest on the Bowery when it was actually the Bowery. And uh, I made my own costumes and I can't sew. So that should tell you something. My my entire bib popped off in the second act. I turned too (laughs) far to the left and I had put snaps in where there ought to have been hooks and it just undid into my hands. But, you know, it was just, it was, it was very, very, very colorful. Um, but I, I was, I was about as unsuccessful as I could possibly have been. And then there was, you know, the, the, the proverbial break. I ended up, um, somebody, uh, somebody I knew from college was an agent and had one of her assistants somehow, put me up for Anthony Newley's to play opposite Anthony, Anthony Newley in a, in a national tour of stop the world. I want to get off where I'd play mm-hmm. four characters and opposite. Now, now the thing is that I was at that very moment really, um, deciding to get out of show business and go into the music business and write and sing because MTV was just starting. And I thought, this is great for me. I, I, I can design music videos, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. And just as I was about to do it, and it's really wild because the uh, logo of Stop the World I Want to Get Off is, is God's hands, supposedly, um, holding on to little chap, who's the lead, who's a little clown, and pulling him back onto the world just as he wants to get off. And that was kind of the truth with me. So the stop the world I want to get off was the means by which I eventually landed up on the, on the West coast and somebody saw me and thus began my Hollywood journey. So we are big fans of Jay Thomas on the show and also obviously of dying English. Yes. Yes. I'm so blessed. Really fortunate. And you are part of the Dying English universe, which is another reason why we wanted to have you on the show. So let's talk about Love and War. Love and War, Love and War was a, was a, I loved that experience. It was um, particularly because I loved my character. I loved, now also because I loved my cast. I loved the people I worked with. They were fabulous. Um, uh, Meg Tynan was, it's one of the reasons I love acting. I always thought of her like a Walter Mitty mm. expression in my mm. life because she was like getting on a suit of armor to play somebody so tough and so butch and who know all about sports. I don't know anything about sports. I don't care much about sports. I would always say <laughs> to Joel, to Joel, to Jay, to Charlie, what does that mean? How do you say that? <laughs> yeah, not very method. I have to be honest. And, um, uh, but it was fun. You know, some of it, some of, particularly TV acting, if you're in a film and it's, you're really trying to create a deep, profound reality, there's a different amount of research, et cetera. Sometimes it will just do to go, what is that term? I don't know. Now I can inhale it as this character and exhale it as Meg and all of that. One of the delicious things about playing Meg was that I didn't have to worry about the feminine part of things. I didn't, you know, after the hair was done, that was one thing. But it was nice to just wield power comedy Hmm. and not have to pay attention to the outer. I remember there was a press something or another, the Hollywood foreign press, which, you know, in my romantic mind was... They were all going to look like Ronald Coleman or something and be incredibly <laughs> literate and, and, and multilingual. But of course, they were not that. And uh, and I was sitting there at the bar and we were all supposed to either be socializing. I can't remember. 
And it was so much fun. I just sat at the bar like, like Meg. Like she wouldn't care. I thought, because these people think I'm not acting. Mm-hmm. And that's really the truth. A lot of people just think you are that character when you are on television. And in some ways it was quite protective because, you know, as I'd mentioned before, I have a wide streak of introversion and, uh, and you know, it, it's not always a comfortable place to be on a set for me. Um, I'm not saying that in some sort of, oh, poor me, I'm just so anxious. You know, I... It just is. It's just who I am. So Meg was a really fun uh, character to just slip into. Well, there is something about that concept of, uh, especially still then, male comedy versus versus a woman doing male comedy. There wasn't this concept that you could just have comedy of different flavors. Exactly. That you couldn't just be. And, and I mean, as I was saying, Designing Women or Murphy or golden girls exactly golden girls all of that they were just funny and they were women and that was it uh yes yes but i just loved um i mean uh, there was one moment there it's so small it's so funny when i look back at my my rather thin career (laughs) i collect these tiny little moments that were delicious and my favorite moment of meg um she was waiting tables. I don't know why she probably needed money or something. And she was waiting tables and, uh, Ray Joel's character said, excuse me, miss, my fork is dirty. Could you please whatever? And she goes, Oh really? I'm so sorry about that. And she just licks the hell out of it and slaps it down on the bar. And it just was just yummy. (laughs) I love that moment. Um, uh, yeah. So it was great fun. And, three tales about Jay and you can take your pick. Okay. So on the set of love and war, Jay would always bust my chops for trying to be a good actor. (laughs) And he, uh, for, for example, now I am not, you know, some Stanislavski student, uh, but I would still try to create a reality. And I had Meg, reading uh, War and Peace. And she would reach over the bar every time she went in and pull out War and Peace and have a drink. And I thought that's the way she would unwind and just uh, keep whatever. And he'd go, what are you doing? What do you think people really care about? People, people don't care. No one cares. No one cares that you're doing that. No one cares. <laughs> you, know, you, know what, you, know what, you know what I care about? Ask me what I care about. What do you care about, Jay? I care about my golf swing. That's what I care about. You know, he just, it's not that he didn't care. Of course he cared, but he just, he, he was constantly in a, in a way that made me laugh. So it wasn't mean, it was just hilarious. And he would just always say, what are you doing? What are you doing? You always get nervous. Why do you get nervous? No one cares. No one cares. Just say your lines. No one cares. (laughs) But Jay and I went way back, you see, because my very first guest spot in Hollywood was Family Ties. And Jay and I shared um, a scene in Family Ties. He was there. And he and I were the only two workers at Elise's workplace. He played a misogynistic... Can I curse on this? We'll oh, beep yes. you, but go ahead. Oh, okay. You don't need to. Just a misogyn... Jay played a misogynistic person. Okay, so... He said he was he he had just said something horrible, and because we always used to remember this, he 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 had just said something horrible, and I said to him, Jerry, you know, I would like, or I think it would be wonderful if a psychiatrist drilled directly into your skull, and he said, Oh, really? What good would that do? And I said, It would kill you, and we just played that little bit over during love and war. I don't know why, like a little vaudeville routine or something, but Jay set me up and I'm going to try to truncate the story as best I can. But Jay set me up for, for one of those little micro moments that I, that, that I will always cherish from my Hollywood career. Um, he was in the education of Max Bickford, Mm -hmm. which was, Richard Dreyfuss's. Mm-hmm. I loved that show. It was a good show. 
he, it was some years after Love and War, and Jay and I hadn't seen each other, and I got a guest spot, which I can't remember, but I'm pretty sure I was terrible in it. Anyway, uh, it was very, very, very late at night. Jay and I had been talking, visiting. It was just delicious to be, you know, when you've worked with somebody a lot, and then you see them again, it just felt so good. And we're sitting on the couch. Jay is on one side of me. Richard is on the other side of me. Richard Dreyfus is fantastic in many ways. So smart. So sexy and uh mm. just terrific yeah yeah and um but lovely just or and lovely lovely person anyway so it's super late at night it is the last shot of the night i'm pretty sure and everyone's just exhausted now when jay gets exhausted he just keeps talking and it <laughs> doesn't really matter if anyone is actually engaging <laughs> and he just kept talking and talking and talking and he's talking quite loudly and even the crew is too exhausted to actually engage with him and so, they, they, you know, they start to settle everybody down, quiet everyone, quiet everyone, and Jay is still talking, and Richard whispers in my ear, uh, what is wrong with him? And then somebody yells, we're on a bell. And I say, well, his mother, background, is his sister. <laughs> Action. <laughs> And Richard starts to talk and bursts out laughing and yells, cut. So I am thrilled forevermore. I have been able to make Richard Dreyfus laugh and ruin a take. And, and, and I owe all that to darling Jay Thomas. Oh, feather in the cap. Well, I don't know if you, you realize, uh, Susie, but his character on Murphy Brown was also named Jerry. No. Yes. Uh-huh. And so I, I didn't. Forgot. I didn't know in, uh, until recently that you guys had done a family ties. I, w- I watched the episode recently, and it really took me back when he, his character was named Jerry. Cut from a bad perm in that <laughs> episode. That was so horrible. I looked like a standard poodle. I don't even want to. <laughs> but you guys have great chemistry. Oh yeah, we had a blast. We really did. It was sad. We were all wistful about that show canceling as soon as it did. Because mm-hmm. we really, th- there was so much gold left yeah. behind between all the characters. But that's showbiz. Yeah. Well, what's great is that unlike Murphy Brown, Love and War is streaming. So people mm-hmm. can still watch it on Amazon. Can they? Yeah. yeah. You can watch it on Prime. There's a couple of instances where songs are replaced. In fact, uh, the saddest thing is Joanna Gleason does not sing at one point. Uh, someone else sings yeah. for her. That's a crime. It is yeah, a total a crime. crime. Yeah, but it was the only way they could get the rights because they had to cut the song out, which is the reason Mm -hmm. that Murphy Brown is not streaming because it has so much music is that it's just so expensive. So I recently actually before the podcast went through the three seasons of Love and War, which I had not seen since I was a kid. And it was really lovely. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It was a fun show. We'd love to hear about working with Diane, particularly because you had worked with her on the first season of Murphy Brown. Did that come into play? Did they think of you for Meg or it was just a coincidence? It was absolutely a coincidence. I read this character. At the time, I was getting more. I mean, there were so many sitcoms then and I was getting more scripts and I loved. I think I had just been fired from a horrible thing I was praying to be fired from. Uh, it It was a pilot. It was horrible. Mm-hmm. And uh, the only thing that made me sad about it was that I had just bought my only new car and I was terrified. But no, it was good. It was they, when they say it, it's true. When one door closes, another mm-hmm. one opens, and I would never have been available to audition for Meg. And I remember um, there's nothing like, at least in those days, walking into a room with people who are ready, willing, and able to laugh. Oh, that's still true (laughs) it's really true i remember distinctly when i walked into um uh family ties audition i remember it so specifically because i was really quite again i was a bit shy and i didn't like uh, you know walking into this room full of strangers and i had i remember this was the family ties audition i walked in and i had a t-shirt on very consciously and it was a fabulous cartoon and the cartoon said and it had a a kind of round guy lying in front of a, a big car. And it said, encumbered with a low self image, Bob takes a job as a speed bump. And oh. they said, cause I kind of thought they might, what does it say on your t-shirt? So I held out the t-shirt, they read it, they laughed. 
consequently, the room was warmed up for me. So, because I don't have, much as I would always love to have played a stand-up and been a stand-up in a whole nother life, I don't have that personality. Mm -hmm. So that kind of helped massage it. Anyway, walking into um, audition for Diane, again, she was, she was uh, a mighty force, but she was, you know, she's so personable and she's so kind. And so she was, she was just, it was, it was just a, a fun fun thing. And I remember there was some kind of conversation we had because I had just quit chain smoking and Meg was supposed to be a smoker originally. Mm. So they wrote it out. Maybe it was the third episode in that Meg had quit smoking. Cause I was like, I mean, I would come home. I remember saying to the prop guy, whoever it was, never let me leave here with a cigarette. <laughs> and of course it's, you know, my responsibility, but I bought, or he bought, somebody bought these, I forget, I think they're called Honey Rose cigarettes or something. But I wanted to be able to rehearse with them, you know, to rehearse because that kind of, those kind of lines, that kind of acting is very um, musical and precise in a lot of ways, at least to mm -hmm. me. So, you know, to be able to, what line are you going to say while the cigarette's in your mouth and you're trying to light it? Where are you going to inhale? Where are you going to exhale? All that. So I had to practice. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, but it only lasted a few, a few episodes. And then she was nice enough to have me quit. Uh, but, you know, when I think back about it, she was such a cool cookie in terms of being able to, to pull it all off and keep it all going. And, you know, it's, it's a thing to be a, to be a showrunner. I would never have it in me for sure. Uh, but she kept all those moving parts working and working well. And, and, um, and yeah, so it was, it was a, it was a lovely, lovely experience. She's a good lady. Uh, we'd love to ask you a little bit about your, uh, your guest role on Murphy. Do you have any memories from, from doing that episode from towering over miles? You know, <laughs> um, my first thought about that is that one of the most, hilarious things to me was that at that age, who knows what age, maybe I was in my early thirties or something, but it was the first time I'd ever played an ingenue because she was like, Oh, hi, Miles. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's and, what's so lovely about it though. Cause yeah. I, it was fun. Yeah. Cause I know you was playing such these wonderful, strong characters mm -hmm. and, and to see this change where she, yeah, she's lovely and just sort of a little demure actually. Yeah. yeah. She really was. Yeah. She yeah. really was. I remember there being some moment directorially, this always, or this used to happen with me often during sitcom, I would try to find a reality that nobody else would really be interested in. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember at some point, I think it was Barnett Kelman who was directing. And I said, how she would see him doing that, you know? And he'd say, well, she's innocent. And I'd be like, I think you think she's dumb, you know, that would, that would, that, that, that often would happen. And I would definitely hear someone say, I don't remember in that particular one, but I remember one time uh, I, I having some difficulty with some particular something or another, uh, someone saying to me, Susie, did it ever occur to you that you think too much? Mm. <laughs> I tell you young, I tell you younger women, when someone says that to you, it's because you, they're not thinking enough. Mm-hmm. Amen to yeah. that. I, I get that a lot as well. <laughs> do you? Yes, I do. Yeah, and I've had a lot of trouble with ingenues with trying to figure out how to play innocent and not play stupid. Yeah, it's a real it's a real struggle. It is. It is a challenge. Sometimes I think um, a possibility is preoccupied. Mm hmm. It the, the problem is when you're doing it and you're on a set and and it's right there there is a little bit, at least for me, it's, you're not feeling collaborated with, you're feeling more puppeted. Mm -hmm. And that is a little, you know, that, that, that's something I, I would have to commandeer around because I mean, I understand they're trying to get stuff done. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's, it's, it's a challenge, um, to, to take something a director says, and especially if it's not helpful, really, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and pretend it is helpful. That's part of that's part of why they call it acting. Yeah, I think that's a, a conversation we haven't really been able to have with any actors that we've had on yet, which is that idea of, 
your job as an actor is not just to quote unquote do what you're told, but to understand what they're trying to get, which is not always the same thing. The jargon is not mm-hmm. always the same. Yeah. And I think also, if I can be um, a bit cynical about it, most directors that I've worked with um, are not necessarily experts in the human condition or great artists. Mm-hmm. A lot of them, and this is no disrespect to some of them, because many of them have been very nice people, um, have never acted in their lives, which I think is actually should be a requirement if you're going to be a director or if you're going to be absolutely. a writer for actors, you absolutely should act. I don't mean you have to be great. I just mean you have to understand, for example, how to wield language that feels uh, natural and musical in someone's mouth and and things like that. But mm-hmm. um, I, it's also, and this is whether it's a voiceover booth or whatever, it's uh, it's learning how to be in some ways political mm-hmm. and making a direction that isn't really useful because there's not a lot of time and just making them think that you've understood what they've said mm-hmm. and yet you're still trying to um, um, make your territory as artistic as you can get it. Yes. And sometimes it's really splitting hairs and frustrating. Uh, my grad school actually made all the directors and the writers take acting classes. There you go. And uh, oh, mine does too. Yeah. Oh, great. And I feel like it's happening more. And I mean, this was, this was a while ago. But also at the time, one of my acting teachers taught the directors at Columbia, the film directors, which I thought was even wow. more important. They had to take scene study classes. They had to direct scene study classes from what my understanding was. And, uh, it's so helpful to working with even working with directors who have previously been actors. I find because they can speak the same language. Oh, that's great. It, it's 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 so different. I mean, one of the episodes I don't remember which one, but Joanna directed one of the episodes, and I think one of the one of the things I was wistful about is that had we gone on, she would have directed a lot more. Yeah. And it was just a shorthand because she's an artist and she comes from a. Um, from a place of in in you know she's such a well-rounded artist and obviously she's brilliant and so it wasn't again it's not that the other directors were horrible they just in many ways were these friendly traffic cops and and uh, no one ever actually that uh, in memory actually helped me figure out anything with a character um maybe helen hunt Maybe mm. there was one moment Helen Hunt did, but she was sitting next to me and she was being an actor at the time. Mm-hmm. And I was just asking something out loud and she gave me a motivation and that was that. And and one was David Steinberg. Um, uh, he was such a gent and such, oh, I just loved him. Um, but it wasn't, I mean, I wasn't searching for any deep character truths, but my point is when Joe took over and was directing us, there was just a, ah, <sighs> Somebody's going to get it. Mm -hmm. Somebody's getting it on all sides. So we've been talking a lot about you as Susie Claxon, the actor, but we've also looked at your career and you've done a lot, not just behind in front of a camera or on a stage. I've seen you done a ton of voiceover work. Uh, You've been a singer. You are. um, And also your recent project seems to kind of bring it all together. Um, I'd love to hear about Lillian. Oh, thank you. Um, So, this audiobook, paperback ebook, is called The Return of King Lillian. And the idea for this came to me in those struggling, struggling gray days in New York City. Mm-hmm. I had a flash of a dream. And in it, I saw a tall, redheaded woman. I was a brunette at the time. I'm a biological brunette, a spiritual redhead. Don't you know? Same. And uh, she was wearing a sensational scarlet velvet cape and a dark purple velvet musketeer type hat, poet sleeves, and, and, and on a glorious gleaming chestnut steed and galloping up a hill under this cathedral ceiling of trees cathedral archway rather of trees. And it was only, I hate this word, a gif. Ugh, I hate that word, but let's say, uh, you know, a, a, a moment in time. And the colors were so exquisite. It was like nothing I've ever seen on this earth, like a Maxfield Parish painting on steroids. It was just 
magnificent. And it was just this moment. And it, again, in the midst of this, this existence that was really struggle, 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 it was just so beautiful and gleaming. And then maybe, oh, I don't know, never put me on a witness stand without coaching me chronologically because they'll, <laughs> convict, they'll convict me right away. Um, uh, it may have been a year later, may have been six months later. I got another one and then I got another one. And then it began to just call me. However the muse works, whether it's coming from here or coming from the other side, you just keep showing up. And, and eventually um, I was looking at the heavens and just saying, what are you doing? I'm not a writer. Leave me alone. I need to be Charles Dickens. You need to get someone else to do this. This is too big. And as the years went by, I began to just play and and some and, and, and invent characters and storyline and all of that stuff. Some of it just came to me. The name just came to me. That was not something that I consciously designed. Things were given to me the more I paid attention to it. And it literally has been since that time until now to birth this creature, which um, is, it's a fable full of fables. It's an allegorical saga full of comedy, calamity, and colorful characters. And it's it's closer to, for, for fans of fantasy, it is closer to The Alchemist, or some people have said it's a little bit Princess Bride, or it's a little bit The Once of Future King, or Alice in Wonderland, than it is Game of Thrones, or Tolkien-esque, or anything. It's really a myth of renaissance and hope. Um, and uh, somebody just said the other day, Huck, Huck Finn, which I thought was so much fun because it's the way Lillian talks. She's a little, mm -hmm. just the way, the quirky way she expresses herself, which again was not something that I designed consciously. It just was part of what was coming through me. So um, if anybody's curious about it, they can go to www.kinglillian.com and they can listen to excerpts and read excerpts and get some free chapters. And it's now available at... Uh, Amazon and Audible and audiobooks.com and other places that don't begin with an A. It's just, um, you know, uh, available worldwide. So it's just beginning to birth after all of this time. I play all the characters in the audiobook. Well, I guess anybody does if they narrate an audiobook. Not necessarily. You can do radio plays. So that's one of the things I actually love the most about looking into this, this story that you've created is going on that website. Um, first of all, seeing that it's world with a W-H-I-R-L. Uh, which is quite fun because I love me some lexicon play, but nice. Oh, then you might, then you'll dig it. I've gotten very into the excerpts, and as our listeners can tell, uh, Susie has no small voice when it comes to expression, and so getting to hear the excerpts ahead of time, getting to hear the point of view, the fact that your first excerpt starts with you talking directly to the book, um, is very engaging. Thank you so much. It's it's interesting because what's on the page is something that's quite eccentric. I don't know how that happened. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's and, and, and it's direct address. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, much of the story, uh, the lion's share of the story is actually told by Lillian and it's first person present. So it's sort of odd. It's just like somebody telling a story. Some people on the page might be anaphylactically allergic to it. Other people dig it, get it. I mean, it's art, it's fine. Um, but on the stage that is in the audiobook, it just seems from what I hear tell people say it's like they're kids again and they're being and they're just being told stories. Um, and so that makes me as happy as it can possibly make me. I mean, just uh, it's it's I really want uh, a glass of champagne and a nap now, to be honest. <laughs> I think you've earned it. Oh, that. Yeah, that's so nice. I'm curious, Susie, because it sounds like you've really been uh, having this idea in your head for so long. Once you actually started writing it, how long did that take, if you don't mind me asking? Wow, wow. Well, this, let's see. I mean, if I really say how long it took, because there were many, many tryings and many failings. Mm -hmm. Now, in all of those yeah. tryings and failings, there was gleaning more and more gold. And I had been trying and failing for a lot of years. Um, and, and I was about to say, if we weren't American, when everyone says, uh, you know, I've got an idea for a book, really, when are you publishing it? You know, yeah. there's no honoring of the fact that art takes time. And not only does art take time, 
art has its own mind and its own time frame. There were plenty of times that I wanted this to be done. And many times I gave up. I was just like, I can't, I can't figure it out. I'm done. When I say that because we're Americans and we're not, um, we're not schooled in the art of, of waiting. Now as actors, you have to master the art of waiting. I wish someone had told me that. It's horrible, but it's true. I hate waiting, but you got to learn how to do it really well. And I think the same is true of art. You, you, or you have to, you have to uh, tune into your own, to your own patterns. Now, some of the things you write, you will write a lot faster and other things come from a different place, either in your psyche or your soul or however you want to look at it. And they take the time that they take the, the, um, the growth of King Lillian was something that, I mean, if you want to get into a woo woo place about it, and sometimes I do, sometimes I'm annoyed by that, but, um, the idea that it was a soul imperative, that it was something that there were, there came a point when I kept giving up and then going back and a year later, giving up and going back. And I, and I thought to myself, um, quite a few times, if I got hit by a car and I didn't finish King Lily and I couldn't die in peace. And because sometimes you should give up stuff. Sometimes you should say, you know, I've done enough done. And then maybe it'll come back to you or you'll come back to it another day. But um, it, w- it wouldn't let me go. Well, you know, the, the car couldn't kill Stephen King because he had to finish Dark Tower. So you're not wrong about that. There you go. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's cool. That's interesting. Had to finish that opus. Yes. Before we let you go, do you have any other favorite stories about uh, working um, on sitcoms? Because here on the show, we really love the history of sitcoms, particularly multi-camera. And for someone like yourself who has so much experience in that area, is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to talk about? Well, you know, one thing that just jumped to, to heart, actually, was the very first time, and we go back to Family Ties, that I walked on that set that... Uh, it was a live audience, and I mean a real live audience, not the kind that they they kept their audience fresh. They didn't keep warming them up for six hours so that by the time they're really exhausted. In those days, it was a little more dangerous, so there's two stories I have to tell. One will be about love and war, which may be the better one. <laughs> okay. Actually, it is the better one. Let me go right to that. So... The pilot of Love and War. Has anyone told the story of the pilot of Love and War yet? No, you're our first you're Love our and first. War person. Oh, okay. Okay. The pilot of Love and War was filmed on the day of the L.A. riots. And Jay Sandrich was directing, you know, venerated sitcom. Mm-hmm. And I, we had one shot there was no, because what was happening at the time was the audience was there and they didn't know. This is not the days of internet. This is not the days of cell phone. This is not the day. They didn't know that LA was burning, but we did. Oh, jeez. Talk about a captive audience. Don't tell them. <laughs> we have to film it and get the hell out of here. And I, I mean... One of the things that I love so much about that pilot is that often when you're shooting stuff, work exceed work. What do they say? Work um, expands to fill the time. But if you have an hour and you have to shoot it in an hour and you got no more than that hour, the life that sparkles in that panic underneath it is just fantastic. So I remember and it was so delicious. I don't remember what the, what the actual joke was. I was in the first scene and the last scene. And Diane, this is her, this is her genius, wrote a joke, a new joke that I was going to deliver in the last scene. She gives it to me. I think she said, and with that wonderful smile and kind of giggly laugh, do you think you can do this for whatever? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, and it had something to do with roadkill. I think roadkill was part of the punchline. And during that time, the only thing that took me off of the, what, what these people, you know, the, the LA, Rodney King, ah, um, was that I had to completely focus every ounce of energy into memorizing that joke in just under an hour. 
and work it 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 and work it. Uh, I'm not a quick study and I have to really ingest a thing. So it was, it was, this is so exciting. This is sitcom. I mean, I wasn't thinking this is so exciting. I was in a state of panic, but, um, but it was, it was super exciting. And then we, you know, somehow everybody got out, everybody got out alive and, and made it home safely to their homes, one would hope. Uh, but yeah, that's what we shot that hour pilot in an hour. Oh, that's wow. baptism by literal fire. Oh yeah. But it was grand. It was grand. I think that, I think that pilot's just terrific. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. Yeah, and, and just to remind our audience, the sitcom does not usually take an hour to film. Oh, oh. <laughs> Several hours. Several hours. I mean, I would say. Yeah, like four or five, right? Exactly. It's like five or six. And you're yeah. only shooting 22 minutes. I think that can get a little out of hand because it can exhaust everybody. And there is thing about yeah. the danger. Mm-hmm. Well, it's theatrical, you know? There's yeah. some, I mean, think about it. Since Caesar, no wonder. I mean, mm. he, 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 an hour and a half live into millions of living rooms. That, that would just, I'd have to be prone. That's why so many people think live theater is a high. It's an addiction to get up there and survive it. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, and it could, it can also be a, a recurring nightmare. Oh, yes. But yeah, it, it, it can be. But uh, yeah, so that was, um, I, I, I don't remember that joke, but I just remember, and I was so honored. I felt so honored that she wrote, she didn't write it for me, she wrote it for the show, but I felt so honored that I got this jewel to go back to my dressing room and polish i i was i loved it loved it this has been so great i wish we had more time with you oh back at you i know know. there's so much to talk about yes there is yes there is that was so much fun thank (laughs) you so much for having me you guys are terrific just so wonderful so smart and so so much fun and i i'm really so appreciative we're so glad we got to speak with you. I'm so excited to go listen to yeah. Lillian now. I wasn't sure if I was going to read it or listen, but now I must listen. Oh, yay, yay, yay. Thank you so much. That means the world to hear. It really does. I'm really excited. And I got two nieces yeah. that may need to read that. So They may need to. Oh, it's yeah. actually written for the young at heart is what mm-hmm. I tend to say. So it's, uh, you know, somebody had just written in some review. She said I was, go- it's so funny. She said I was about to give this to my niece, but now she'd have to fight me for it. <laughs> That's what I like to give them as the, you know, as the young, cool aunt. I like to give them the old soul stuff. Ooh, I mm-hmm. love the sound of that. Mm-hmm. Well, you just made my heart sing. That's so sweet. <laughs> thank you. Thank-, Aww, thank you. All right, you guys, sending you a virtual hug and many, many thanks. Have a good one, Susie. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. This is a blast. Bye, you guys. Bye. And yes, if um, if you didn't uh, catch her in Love and War, which shame on you, go to Amazon and watch it.